hey, this fall we've actually been in a sermon series called Beautiful, Disappointing, Hopeful, these three words that describe the Christian story, but in many ways describe the human experience, especially beauty and disappointment. How do we live in a world where we experience like the celebration of today? Today is a day of celebration in our city. The New York City Marathon is happening, everyone. Uh, For those who are running, we're cheering them on, we're celebrating them. For those of us who are not running, we're celebrating that we're not running. Um, I mean, it's a day of celebration in many respects, and yet at the same time, the world is full of disappointment and hardship and difficulty. There's the news of war that happens outside of not only this country, but um, the war that's happening in Israel and Gaza, the pain of um, betrayal and hurt in relationships, or the pain that some of us might be experiencing in our relationships, uh, in our workplaces, and whatever else it might be. And, And the question for the human experience is, how do I live in the midst of beauty and disappointment? Now, we talked about how the Christian story is one of hopefulness that is found in the person of Jesus. Uh, and as uh, we explore Christianity and what it's all about, we've been exploring these two questions. Is Christianity true? Is it something that um, has some historicity and veracity to it? Is it something that's worth believing in and that is reasonable to believe in? And second, is it compelling? Is it worth giving my life and my everything to? And really this invitation of the Christian faith when it comes to beauty, disappointment, and hopefulness, we talked about how the Christian story, in these three words, our response as Christians then first is one of gratitude, but also of grieving. We're not a people that are simply happy, happy, joy, joy all the time without any grief, but we live between the two and that we live, as we explored last week, um, both receiving grace and dispensing grace whenever we can. Now, ultimately, the Christian story has always been, if, I were, if you were to ask me what is the fundamental call of every Christian, at the end of the day, Jesus actually gives us what this call is. You ready for this? Here's the call of the Christian story. It's follow me. That's what Jesus says. To follow Jesus. That's it. It's not follow an ideology, which some are prone to do, or follow a moral code, which some of us might think that's what the Christian story is about. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, whatever messages you've received about what Christianity is all about, Jesus distills it down into this one thing. Follow Jesus. Follow me, he says. A person, a living, breathing person. Now, this is so different than just, again, following a moral code or following an ideology. It's about having this relationship with a person. You know, one of the things that I love to do is I love to host gatherings where a bunch of single people can meet each other and maybe eventually find everlasting love. That's a weird way of putting it, sorry. But um, one of the reasons why I love having these gatherings together is because there's a difference, right, between, uh, and this is no shade against apps or dating apps that are out there, like, because uh, a lot of times, right, these apps, they give just a, a cursory look at who someone is. Um, or if I were to tell you about someone and to read some of their, I don't know, the things, descriptions about them, It's different than actually meeting with someone, hearing them laugh, getting used to the cadence of the relationship and the conversation and how that feels and the chemistry that occurs with it. 
And one of the reasons why I love hosting these gatherings is because it's a way for people to meet one another. So prior to starting Hope Church, I was a young adult and singles pastor at a church over in Queens, and we would get other churches together where single people could meet other single people and hopefully uh, get to know each other and grow in community and relationship together. But you and I know this, right? There's something different about the fabric of a relationship. The difference between reading about somebody and actually knowing them and meeting them, uh, the flesh and blood version of them. And here, what's so astounding is what we believe as Christians, that God came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. And Jesus comes and he says, follow me, the person, right here, right now, follow me. You know, one of the pain points for me as a pastor is a lot of times, see, it's not only, it's everything else that comes with this Christianity thing that sometimes gets in the way of people following Jesus. There's the pain and hurt of churches. There's a pain of how Christians have made following Jesus an ideology. It's the pain of how Christians have made following Jesus into some sort of moral code. And I realized even for myself, you know, when this sermon series first started, I shared my own story of the pain that I experienced at the hands of the church that I grew up in, some of the pain of conflict that happened in the church that I grew up in, uh, the visible pain of seeing police called in to break up fights between leaders within the church. And I remember being so off, put off by that experience of growing up in that kind of church. Some of you are like, I would actually love to see that kind of church. Well, you know. But for me, it was the pain of seeing such pain and conflict in a church. And then, of course, growing up with a father who would later become a pastor himself. And growing up with the pain of growing up in a home where I felt like some of the values and the ways that my dad would behave were so different than what I wanted to emulate or what I would read in Scripture about Jesus. And eventually it came down to a point for me where if I could just cut through everything else, all the drama of church, all the pain points of my own relationship with my dad, and if somehow I could just get to Jesus. You know, and then after I finally came to a point where I found Christianity to be true and credible and compelling, and I made this decision saying, Jesus, I want to follow you with my whole heart. And then I made my own decision to become a pastor. And then now as a pastor, I realize sometimes I can be the biggest hindrance to you all. Of meeting Jesus. And sometimes the church itself can be the biggest hindrance of following Jesus. Maybe some of you have ex experienced extreme betrayal or hurt or hypocrisy in a church. Maybe it's been me and my goofiness that somehow has kept you from Jesus. And yet at the end of the day, the task of the Christian has always been to follow Jesus, a person. And if me or anyone else gets in the way of that, gosh, if you could just, like, remove us from the equation so that somehow you and I could draw near to Jesus. There's a Danish pastor, when he, when he was describing kind of the history of the church and when the church would move from region to region, check out what he says about what the church became. In Rome, the church became an institution. In Greece, the church became uh, a philosophy. In Europe, the church became a culture with all of its beautiful, ornate buildings. And then in the United States, the church became a business. There are so many ways in which the church has been co-opted by the world. 
and the ways in which the world values whatever it might be, esteem, power, money. There are ways, even me, kind of like the way that I follow Jesus, there are so many ways that my faith gets co-opted by anything but Jesus, and I need to come and repent in dust and ashes to say, Jesus, please, whatever I'm about, whatever our family is about, whatever our church is about, could you make it about Jesus? But at the end of the day, it gets so confused and muddled. And yet the invitation of Jesus is not, hey, follow this institution, follow this culture, follow this philosophy, follow this business, follow this influencer. No, it's always been, will you follow Jesus? That's the invitation for you and me. See, the people of God from its earliest times were always given this invitation, the invitation to come and follow this God. Check out what it says, Isaiah chapter 55 in the passage that was read for us. This is Isaiah. Isaiah says, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and sell. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest affair. Here's what Isaiah is saying. See, the human condition is we are a people who are constantly thirsting and hungering after all sorts of things, aren't we? Whether it's money, whether it's success, whether it's fame, whether it's power, whether it's that relationship, that guy, that girl, whatever it might be, that child that we could have one day, that influence, whatever it might be, the human condition is full of these longings. And what Isaiah is basically saying is, why do you continue to fill yourself with bread or that which does not satisfy you? Why do you keep spending yourself on the story of New York? So much of it is around money and acclaim. Not that these things are bad things in and of themselves, but when they become the thing that animate us, that drive us, the reason why we've moved to this city. Some of us, were suffering from the heartbreak of relationships that are broken And perhaps it's because, yes, we've been thirsty and hungry, but we've been left wanting how many of us are in this place. And here's what Isaiah is saying. Come and eat what is good. Don't settle for any of those things. Come and eat what is good. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned this quote from Henry David Thoreau where he says, the mass of men and women lead lives of quiet desperation. I mean, isn't it true? We are people who are constantly desperate for looking for satisfaction, for meaning, for purpose. And here's what Isaiah is saying, come and eat what is good. You know, I grew up, again, immigrant home. And so in an immigrant home, we didn't have a lot of money. And so as a result, we were constantly um, frugal about everything, especially about uh, eating out and things like that. And so I remember one of the first times I went to something called a buffet. Anyone know what I'm talking about, a buffet? Yeah. So I went to this buffet, the local Sizzlers. Um, I, I don't know if there's a Sizzlers in New York City. Um, so I went to this local buffet and I remember the first time, again, we grew up so frugal. So now's an opportunity. And my father told me, you can have whatever you want here. It's just one fair. I was like, this is amazing. So I remember uh, like going up in line and seeing this tray full of hot, warm, delicious food. And so I grew up with three brothers as well. So there's four of us. So we're all like these growing hungry boys. And I'm at this buffet and I'm like, I can't believe I get to get whatever I want. So my first plate, the first station was like 
the rice and some of the carbs. And so I just dumped all sorts of rice on my plate and I went back because I knew I could go back for more. So when I get back to my seat, my father, he smacks me on my, on my head. He smacks me and I was like, oh my, dad, what's wrong? You told us that we can get whatever we want. And he goes, you can get whatever you want, but no rice. <laughs> He's like, Go, go get the meat. Just go get meat or chicken, and that's it. Don't waste your appetite or my money on rice. Give me your plate. I was like, yes, sir. You know, <laughs> and I was like, and what's crazy is like, even today at buffets, like, this is kind of like my mentality right now. I was like, okay, we just got to eat the expensive stuff. I mean, that was the mentality that was, was told to me, eat what is good. Don't fill yourself with what doesn't satisfy. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? You know, the invitation of Jesus even continues with an invitation to follow him. Look at what Jesus says, Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, here's what's crazy is that Jesus in other places will talk about the hard road of following him. And it's true because even the Apostle Paul would one day, he would say, if anyone wants to be a Christian or to follow Jesus, they will be persecuted. Welcome to church, everyone, you know? So it's not like the Christian journey is something that's without pain or difficulty. And yet Jesus is able to say, for anyone, are you weary and heavy laden? Are you thirsty and hungry? You can come to me and find rest for your soul. For I am gentle and humble in heart. See, there's always been an invitation that if you're weary, if you're thirsty, if you're hungry, you can come. You know, the book of Revelation was written by John, who's exiled in Patmos, and he has this vision of how following Jesus, the ultimate end is where Jesus, his love, his forgiveness, his justice, they triumph in the end. And at the end of the book of Revelation, look at what it says in Revelation 22. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Whether you're someone who's exploring faith, or whether you're someone who's been a Christian for a long time and you realize that your heart has been wandering and longing and the invitation has always been to come to Jesus, will you follow Jesus? Not a pastor, not a church, not an ideology. But will you follow Jesus? You know, when this message series first started, we talked about four human experiences 
that really the human condition wrestles with from time to time, whether you're religious or you're not, the condition of suffering. Suffering comes to every single one of us at various moments in our lives. Uh, Or the experience of death. When death confronts us, if you've ever been to a funeral, all the questions and the finality that comes with funerals. Oftentimes when I talk about funerals, when people ask me, what's it like to do a funeral? I often tell people that the main kind of feeling that I feel is awkwardness incredibly awkward. Now, that might not be the word that you expected because the reason why it's awkward is because sometimes I go to funerals and it's like this big family reunion and people are celebrating one's life. And so part of me, like, I don't know whether to add into that celebration and to tell a great story about the person and to invite others to tell great stories. And other times, these these tragedies that lead to death, and it's really awkward. I don't know whether to cry and weep and embrace or just to remain silent or to be someone who celebrates with. Now, why is it that funerals are so awkward? What if it's because we were never meant to die? What if because death is one of those things that's been introduced to the human experience that leave us wanting and struggling and searching for answers? It's not a problem just for the Christian who believes in a good God. It's a problem for anyone, whether you're an atheist or agnostic. What happens when I die? Why does death exist? But not only death, but also love. All the things that could be written about love. Love is not something that could be contained in one page, one written assignment. Instead, uh, love is reserved for the artists who can sing about it, the poets who write about it. The movies that explain about love, and even then, we don't know all the dimensions and the mysteries of love. And lastly, infinity or eternity. These are four human experiences or questions that humans experience, whatever your religious disposition may be. And Charles Taylor, when he writes about a secular age, he, he writes about a haunting eminence. I mean, this, these are the reasons for this haunting eminence because no matter how many answers or how many advancements we have in society, at the end of the day, the human experience is plagued by these mysteries that we're trying to make sense of. No matter how old you are, what you've experienced, what your background is, we're all a little bit hungry, a little bit thirsty. We want more. You know, even in the highest levels of the academy, questions of meaning and purpose and the pursuit of happiness have always been forefront and paramount, especially now. What's so stunning is, of course, all the advancements of today's age, the amount of wealth that exists in this city, and yet people are desperate to learn what will finally make us happy. Clayton Christensen and Arthur Brooks Uh, are both Harvard Business School professors. Uh, Clayton Christensen recently passed, and he was one of the foremost thinkers around innovation. And he wrote this book that actually started from an article in the Harvard Business Review called How Will You Measure Your Life? And it's interesting because as a Rhodes Scholar himself, someone who had reached and met people that reached the pinnacles of their career, one of the questions that continue to plague him is like, I meet so many people who have advanced so much when it comes to money, fame, notoriety in their industries. And yet when it comes to living life and their families, they seem more thirsty and hungry and broken than ever. And so he introduced this class from this question, how will you measure your life? And it's become one of the most more popular classes at Harvard Business School. 
Why? Because money, fame, success, all the things that people move to New York for ultimately don't satisfy. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Do you want more? Arthur Brooks, one of the foremost experts on happiness studies, he, he recently wrote a book with Oprah called Build the Life You Want Related to the Pursuit of Happiness. Isn't it interesting? Here are people that we think are the pinnacles of learning the next business leaders and world leaders of today and tomorrow and some of the more popular classes I'll deal with the question of what are you thirsty for? What are you hungry for ultimately? Do you want more? Now the answer to that is that what it means to be a human being is we're constantly left searching and wanting. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have, how much you've made it. See, and the invitation of the Christian journey is if you're thirsty, if you're hungry, if you want more, the invitation is always open. You can come to Jesus. Why do you fill yourselves on that which does not satisfy? You know, in the book of Revelation, here's what Jesus says. He says, here I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I mean, it's this beautiful image of what Jesus is saying. Now, one of the things I appreciate about this is Jesus doesn't say, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you don't open the door, I'm going to slam this door open. One, two, three. You know, he's not like that. He's just standing, knocking, waiting for anyone who's thirsty or hungry enough to open the door. Are you thirsty or are you hungry? Have you been left wanting from comparing yourself to other people? You wonder why you're not like them or don't have what they have or you're not as well off as them or as pretty as them or as strong or as accomplished as them or have the connections that they do. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Do you want more? Have you been suffering under an addiction or depression and you find yourself, you keep going back to anything that will somehow numb some of the pain and anxiety that you feel? Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? And here Jesus is standing at the door knocking, saying, I'm ready to open the door if you're ready for me. Here's what I've realized. Most of us, when it comes to the Christian faith, wherever you are in the spiritual journey, most of us, we've got these different phrases, right? One phrase is like, listen, I'm not good enough. Those Christians, that's for them. Those goody two-shoes, they're the ones that have it all together. Remember last week we talked about how the central word of the Christian story has been grace. That God's arms are wide open, that the most exclusively inclusive message in the world is the message that before God that you can experience forgiveness and love and grace. It's not about how good you are, it's about how good God is. Well, some of us are like, well, well then I don't know enough. Or I'm not ready enough. I don't know if I'm ready to like to give my life to Jesus. 
You know what Paul says in his letter to the church in Ephesus? He says, you have been saved by grace through faith. Here's what faith is. Faith is not absolute certainty. I have absolute knowledge of something, and therefore that's why I'm making this decision. Faith is, there's a reasonable amount of faith I have. And because of that faith, I'm going to shift the weight of my life. The weight of my life that has been pursuing all these other things so that thinking that somehow my hunger, my thirst, my desperate wanting of more could be satisfied. And faith is shifting that to Jesus, to believing in God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's love, God's healing, God's hope. Well, I don't know enough, you might say. I'm not ready enough. Um, you know, when I was in my 20s, uh, before I met Tina, my wife, um, I dated two other women for a brief stint. And those two women, um, there was a similar pattern in the relationship that I regret to share about. And uh, with one of the women that I dated, she later explained to me, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a mutual friend of ours later explained to me that um, I am a woman's worst nightmare to date. I know, some of you are like, you're the pastor, dude? I get it, I get it. I know, super painful. And um, she told me you're, you're one of uh, a woman's nightmare to date, and the reason why is because you're so wishy-washy in the relationship. Like, on one end, you're like, yes, I want to date you. The next end, you're like, I don't know. And so as a result, both of the relationships, both of them broke up with me, and they both, it was a roller coaster for them. And so when this mutual friend told me that, and I realized how it was painful for me to hear, how I had caused so much pain because of my wishy-washiness, and now there's all sorts of reasons for that wishy-washiness that I've had to investigate and talk through and like wrestle with from my own family background as well as my own kind of warped view of dating and relationships. And so I remember like before I started dating Tina, my wife, like I remember just kind of this invitation that came from a mentor of mine. Drew, if you can just go on a date with her and just be someone who's, who's not so up and down but like... Don't treat every decision like it's life and death, but just enter a relationship and be a steady person. So I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to be a steady person. One of the things that I realized in these previous relationships was that we would, like, we were friends at first, and then it would morph into, is this romantic or not? And then as a result, that was kind of what led to some of the wishy-washiness. So remember, with Tina, we had been friends for two years, and I realized I was interested in her, so I wanted to ask her out. So part of growth for me was just being firm now and being like all in, like I'm going to make this kind of ask. And so I remember going to Tina and uh, I, I asked if I could meet with her. So we, you know, we got together and I, I basically said to her, Tina, I'd like to ask you out on a date in a romantic way. Can I take you out to lunch sometime? And she's like, 
that was very unromantic. Uh, that was like, that was weird, but yes, all right, sure. Now, like, from my background, like, I was like, I had to talk through with my mentor. My mentor was like, listen, just be steady, man. When you're asking her on a date, it's not like you're asking her to marry you, okay? Like, I'm like, I know, I know, but still, like, there's a, he's like, just, just relax, just relax. So I remember going on this date, and I remember, like, I had an amazing time. And I remember going back to my mentor and being like, do I, do I tell her that I want to marry her now? He's like, no, no, you just, you just, you just go on a second date. So as a result, we ended up going on a second date, and then months into our relationship, I realized that I was in a place where I was falling for her. And I remember, though, like these moments where I'd be kind of afraid of committing, and I'd be like, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. And my mentor would basically say, like, do you, do you know you know her? I'm like, yeah, but I don't know everything about her. Like, we've been friends for a while now. We've talked for a long time. We've been going out for a while. I don't know everything about her. I said, hey, well, tell me what you know about her. I think she's amazing. I think she's someone of great character. I know that she loves Jesus. I know that I'm attracted to her in every way. I know that we have chemistry with one another. I know there's some things that annoy me, but still, like, you know, and I, and I start just listing these things. And then I remember saying, I think I know enough to say I love you. I know enough to say that I love her. And I want to spend the rest of my life with her. I realize it's a little presumptuous to put a quote of myself up there, but and to say, just kind of, kind of weird. Weird. Hey, if that keeps you from Jesus, listen, it's all about Jesus, okay? It keeps you. I know enough to say I love you. You know, Jesus, when he hung on the cross, he says, I thirst. You know, there'd be all these images and metaphors throughout the scriptures of people. If you're thirsty, if you want the water of life, if you've been longing for living water, come to the river, come and drink. And Jesus Christ hangs on a cross and he says, I'm thirsty. And he gives up his life to demonstrate to you and to me that, see, Jesus himself would thirst so that you and I could forever be satisfied, so that you and I could find in Jesus the Savior, the peace, the love, the joy, the forgiveness, the satisfaction that perhaps you've always been looking for. Will you come? Come to the waters. Come and drink. Come and eat. Do you want more? Come to Jesus. You know, the early church, there was a phrase, because some of you are like, yeah, okay, follow me, but Jesus is like some disembodied figure who I read about on a page. How is that similar? See, when Jesus ascended into heaven, Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being the third person of the Trinity, God himself. 
the Holy Spirit, holy being meaning other spirit being wind or breath. The Holy Spirit would, would be God's presence to us that we might experience the peace, the fullness, the joy, the love, the kindness of God. And so the early church would pray this prayer, come Holy Spirit, come and meet me.